I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. We're carrying on with our um, travel from Abraham's homeland to the promised land. So we've talked about Abraham starting out in Ur, about uh, Isaac and about Jacob and uh, their journeys as sojourners in the land of promise, living in tents rather than living in the cities of the Canaanites. And uh, we talked about Joseph, how he um, not only is elevated throughout his life and brought to a place where he can supply for the children of Israel, but uh, and at that point, the children of Israel was just like, you know, 13 guys. But uh, not only can he provide for his family, but uh, when he dies, he says, take my bones to the promised land. And the Bible makes a point of that in the New Testament. It says in Hebrews, by faith, Joseph looked forward to the promised land, saw the promised land, and gave instructions uh, concerning his bones. That's such an interesting thing, isn't it? When is the last time you guys thought that your funeral arrangement was, a, was an act of faith? <laughs> that telling somebody where to put your bones was a faith move. Did anybody ever think that? Well, for Joseph, it was. By faith, he believed God's going to bring us into the land of promise. And uh, don't leave me buried here. He said, uh, you know, take my bones with you when you leave because I want to be there too. And this is important. And so uh, we're going to move on. Uh, we, we're going we're gonna to kind of fast forward through a couple things and we might loop, out, loop back and look at them again later. But uh, I want to bring us to the place in the, right in the beginning of Exodus where we encounter the Israelites in, in a place of distress. Now, God had told Abraham ahead of time that the Israelites were going to be in a foreign land for a time. They were even going to be oppressed while they were there, but that he would bring them out, he would deliver them. The Bible tells us in the book of Exodus right in the beginning, in fact, let's start reading right in chapter 1. It says, Joseph died. That's Exodus 1.6. So the link in the chain continues. We've talked, you know, Abraham, God makes a covenant. Isaac, God continues his covenant. Jacob, God affirms his covenant, changes his name to Israel. Joseph, God demonstrates his covenant, reaffirms it, blesses the people of Israel, even in Egypt, and then tells them they're going to go back home. And now it says, in the book of Exodus, chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Joseph died. And when he died, it says, all his brothers and all that generation... And verse 7, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. May I ask you, can anybody just tell me why that happened? Now, don't give me the junior high answer uh, that, you know, well, people got married and they had kids. You know, I mean, think about it. Why, it, why is a point made of this? Because you know what? They're humans, right? So you might say, well, all humans multiply, but... The fact that the scripture brings it out like this, it seems to be that they're thriving more than the Egyptians. And we'll see the results of that in a few verses. But, but here it says, the sons of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly, and multiplied. So fruitful, increased greatly. Of course, that's talking about the kids, but it's also talking about, you know, how God had blessed them, how they were, how they were thriving in the land that he put them in. He says, and they multiplied and they became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Why? Because from the very beginning, God blessed Adam. What did he say? Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. Noah gets off the boat, 
lands on the rock. God says, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. And and he doesn't just say that. It says, the Lord blessed him, saying. So this is the blessing of God on them. Abraham, God blessed him. Through Melchizedek said, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. So the blessing of God was on the people of Israel. They could not help but be fruitful, multiply, and fill the land that they were in because God's blessing was on them. They were the blessed people of God. They carried that with them. Guys, we sometimes take that so lightly because we say that when people sneeze. Bless you. But this was enough for Jacob to almost die for. So we take it so lightly. Well, everybody's kind of blessed, right? I mean, God blesses all sorts of people. And yet, and yet Jacob was willing to, to pull every trick out of his bag he had. It says that Esau, when he realized later, he came to his senses and realized what he messed up on, what he missed out on. He says he, he sought for it, repentance with tears but couldn't find it. Jacob gets this blessing from his father, which is the blessing of Abraham, passed from father to son. And then that's not enough for him. He wrestles with God all night and says, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. See, that's something bigger than just something we say when someone sneezes. This is truly something that that people were willing to, to fight for those that knew it. And so this was the blessing of God on the people of Israel, even in the land of foreigners. And here's what happens. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. See, Joseph had a great reputation in Egypt, and the people, his family found favor with the Egyptians because Joseph, if you'll recall, uh, God used him to provide for the Egyptians in famine. God gave uh, a dream, and Joseph interpreted that dream by the help of the Holy Spirit, by the help of God. And the dream told the Egyptians and told Joseph that there'd be seven years of bumper crops and seven years of famine, seven years of drought. And God told him, so Joseph, you take in those seven years of abundance, you set that aside, and you'll have enough during the seven years of famine. Not only for Egypt, but for, but for your family as they come and be provided for. And so Joseph had a great reputation. He was governor of Egypt. He was a just and and good ruler. And so people uh, respected him, respected his family. But after generations, uh, a new king arose. So this is like 400 years later. I want to ask you, any of you holding, you know, uh, holding a certain family in high esteem because of something they did for your family 400 years ago? No? No? None of you are going back to that little town in England and said, you know, 400 years ago, you guys uh, helped us out of a tough spot. And I, I, just, I just had to come visit you. Some people are like that, but most of us, you know, we, we don't have memories like that. And we really, we live in our, in our present generation. And so a new king arose. He had no knowledge of Joseph, didn't care. And here's what it says. He said to his people, behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and they're mightier than we. So they're both, they're more than us, and they're stronger than us. He says, come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted him, the more they multiplied, the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, 
And they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field and all the labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one whose name was Shipra and the other whose name was Pua. And he said, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, I don't know what a birth stool is. It does not sound comfortable or fun to me. I was in the room when my son was born, and I, I don't think a birth stool sounds like a fun idea, but hey, if that's your thing, that's fine. If you see them upon the birth stool, if it's a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God. Thank God for that. And did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives. Now, this is part craftiness on the midwives' part, right? Because the Bible says they let the kids live. But obviously the Israelites had a reputation amongst the Egyptians that Pharaoh accepted this. These are mighty people that God is with. And Pharaoh's like, yeah, it makes sense that these people give birth fast to them. They just seem to be doing well. And so they feared God, and God was good to them. And the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. God established households, praise the Lord. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, every son who is born... You are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. So this is the second law that he's passed to kill the boys, the baby boys. We've read that so many times, we just kind of read through it, but let that sink in. There's genocide taking place here, state-sanctioned genocide of half of their kids being killed. How terrible is that? How messed up is that? And of course, the point's been made several times. It's not a new thing that I'm saying today, but uh, every time God seems to raise up a a redeemer, somebody to bring his people out, when God raises up Moses, when God raises up Jesus, there is an attempt to kill that person. You know, the enemy is not uh, omniscient. He doesn't know everything. You know that, right? So the enemy, the devil, knows that prophecy will come to pass. You remember that even the demons, when they saw Jesus, when he crossed the sea to to a, a foreign land, they said, what are you doing here? Have you come to torment us before the time? So they knew a time was coming. They were aware of it. You know, God had been telling his people, I'm sending Messiah. He'd been telling them that since the beginning, that he was sending a redeemer. The devil knows how to read. He knows how to listen. He may be rebellious, he may be in a state of constant chaos, but, you know, he knows how to hear. But he doesn't know the heart of God, he doesn't know the will of God. All he knows is the prophet said he was going to come. God promised that somebody was going to come and crush my head. So, whenever he saw somebody that was about to arise, the enemy stirs up kings to kill, to steal, to destroy. You know, if the devil knew who Jesus was, exactly, he would have sent somebody, he would have, he would have, he would have sent somebody right to Bethlehem to write to that barn, but he didn't know. He just knew somewhere around here, stirred up the king to kill, but nobody could take away God's plan of redemption. So every son who's born, you're cast into the Nile. You guys know the story. I'm not going to read it, but you know the story 
that Moses is rescued because now the first edict, Pharaoh told the midwives, you kill them. I mean, what a horrible thing. But now he's telling his soldiers. Now he's, he's putting more teeth behind it. And so Moses is snuck away, put in a basket, put on the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter picks him up, finds Moses. And so Moses' name actually means drawn out, drawn out from the water. Moses is rescued and raised in the royal house. And you know the story. His sister comes by and says, hey, do you need someone to nurse that baby? I know a lady. And that lady, in fact, happens to be Moses' mom. And so this is the story of Moses as he grows up. He's growing up as an Egyptian noble, as an Egyptian prince. Much has been made of that. Good movies have been made from that. Bad movies have been made from that. But, but that's a, the classic story. But I want to I point out a couple of things, and we, we'll go back to Moses' life. But today, I, tonight, I want to talk to you mainly about the Israelites as they are under this bondage and what's God hearing and what's God feeling for them. We find this in the end of chapter 2. It came about in verse 23. Now, it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. The literal Hebrew says, and God knew them. I want to ask you just a simple question. It says God remembered his covenant. Do you think that God forgot his covenant? No. It says that God took notice of them. Do you think God had forgotten to take notice of them? No. So this is affirming, even though he's responding to their cry, he has not stopped caring for them. We just saw that. We saw how God had, had blessed the midwives that saved the kids. He, we saw how God had caused them to be fruitful and mighty and had spared them and had caused them to grow. And not only that, but, but years before they ever cry out for help, God has caused this child Moses to be saved so that he could be a deliverer. So God didn't wait for the prayer before he started doing something. But he did respond to their cry. In that section, just that short section that we just read, there's four sounds that they make. Four different words in Hebrew. To sigh. To call out for help. To cry out. And to groan. And God heard every one of those sounds. Every sound of the people, this deep sigh. It's a sigh of distress. It's a sigh of weariness. And God heard it. There was a, a, the next word where it says they called out to God. That's often used not just in a singular sense, although it can be, but it's often used when a group of people come together and call for help. Many times in the Old Testament, they would call a solemn assembly and, and, and they would call to God and that's the word they'd use. Do I believe that this old man making bricks for Pharaoh calls out to God in his distress individually, yes. But I also believe, just from the hints that's left in that scripture, I also believe there's a point where they come together and they say, come on, let's cry out to God. 
God heard their cry. That word cry that it says God heard pops up all over the New Old Testament. Pops up all over the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, but especially the Old Testament. And if you've ever read the Psalms, you recognize this word. You see, in, here in our modern culture, when we say cry, we think of weeping. That's not cry that we're talking about here. This is a call out for help. This is a, and in fact, the, there, there were two words for, to call out. The first one, it says, when they called out to God for help. And the second one, when God heard their cry. And that word cry is almost like a higher pitched, like a shriek for help. But David uses it many times. He says, I cried to the Lord. I mean, I don't know, if you've, if you've read through the Psalms, you've seen it over and over again. We cried out to the Lord. He talks about their ancestors. Our, our fathers cried out to the Lord and he delivered them. And you know, there's something about believing that there is a deliverer and he's on your team and he's on your side and that you cry out and you call out on his name that something's going to happen when you do. There's something to be said for a group of people that don't think God is doing this to them, but God is the one who wants to deliver them. That the scripture says, many, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Do we believe that the Lord is our deliverer? We could talk for months and months, years and years about good prayer. Biblical, scriptural prayers of faith. And it should be a cornerstone of our life. Different types of prayer. Prayers of intercession, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of petition. All of these different types of prayers. But God also hears the distressed, the sudden, the urgent cry of his people. There's times when you, and I'm not talking about, you know, this is, <laughs> uh, it says in the New Testament that, that Jesus was heard in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he, when he it says he prayed to God and he, he cried out with, with, and he had many tears and he was crying out. And I've heard people talk about that like Jesus was just in the garden, just going, God, I don't like it. It's so hard. You know, but that's not what he was doing. He called out to God for help. And God answered him and sent angels to minister him in that moment. The Bible says that angels respond to the voice of God. And the voice of God is activated when he hears his people cry. And I'm not talking about you sobbing, although he hears that too. I'm talking about that call out for help. There's times where you don't know the perfect thing to pray. Thank God for the Holy Spirit, amen? amen. You're praying the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Holy Spirit prays out with what? Groanings too deep for words. There's times when you don't even know. I mean, there's times where it's, it's, it makes, it sounds like words that you don't understand. And sometimes it's just sounds. More often than not, it's, it's a heavenly language, but, you know, I don't limit the work of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> he intercedes for us. But there are times when, when you don't have time to think about the perfect prayer, word it just right. And, and, you know, that's not honestly what God's looking for. The Bible says, Jesus said, don't be like the Pharisees who think that they're heard because of how they use their words. They use these really holy, religious-sounding words, and they think God hears them. And don't be like the Gentiles who think they're heard because they used a lot of words. Prayer doesn't have to be long. I believe in 
prayers based in the word of God. I believe in having scriptures going into your prayer. Do you believe that? I believe that too. I also believe that there are times when all you can do is call out in the name of the Lord. And he hears the cry of the righteous. And he delivers them. When it says that he remembered his covenant, it doesn't mean he'd forgotten it. It means that was how he responded to their cry. That's what, that's what uh, was, was the driving force behind his action. When he heard their cry, he acted on the basis of a covenant that he had made with their fathers. You know, David said, and we're going to read this in a minute. David said, uh, um, I cried to the Lord, he delivered me. And he goes on and he talks about all the things that God did. And we're going to read that in a second. But, but he says at the end of it that God heard him because he was righteous. And that God hears the cry of the righteous. And he doesn't hear the cry of the wicked. And he goes through this and he says, I, because I was righteous, God heard me. And, I, and I, I went back to think about these Israelites and I realized that there's nothing in here that says they were that righteous. They might have been, (laughs) but it wasn't the thing that God responded to at that moment. What God was responding to was the fact that he had made a covenant with them. Now, I still believe that God hears the cry of the righteous, but I also believe that God's mercy towards these people was real in the fact that he wasn't acting based on how they were acting. He was acting based on a covenant that he had made, and that covenant is so binding to God. It's so binding to him. And we should never take lightly the fact that we've been grafted into that covenant. The covenant which kept the people of Israel even in a land of oppression. The covenant that delivered them. The covenant that supplied and provided for them. The covenant that brought them into a promised land. Not because of what they did, but because God made a promise to their fathers. And Abraham is our father by faith. I want you to see something, and then we're going to go to the Psalms, but first let's go to Hebrews And I've read this to you before, and some of you will be very familiar with it. But um, in Hebrews, and and we're just going to go right to the, uh, I'll start in the first chapter, then we'll move on to the second. Hebrews 1.14 He's talking about angels. I still hear flipping, so I'll, I'll give you a minute. <laughs> Hebrews 1.14, he's talking about angels. He says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Angels are ministering spirits sent out to aid and to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. There are a lot of creatures in heaven, right? Some that would just freak us out to see them. Some we do not want to. I mean, you know, we've had plenty of people in services say during the praise and worship or during the prayer or during the preaching or during the ministry that is sick or whatever, I saw angels. People see that, you know, all, all the time in different areas, but thank God we don't always see the angels that are roaming around heaven sometimes or the creatures Angels probably isn't the word for it, but the heavenly creatures, there are heavenly creatures that would freak us out. Eyes in weird places, 
<laughs> like the one, he says there's eyes without, eyes all around, eyes without, and eyes within. What in the world does eyes within mean? I don't know. It's creepy, though. There are creatures that we have not even begun to understand. The word angel comes from a word for messenger. So most of the time when we talk about angels, we're talking about the creatures that God created, not only for His glory and His pleasure, but also for these people. So we know that they're angelic beings, they're heavenly beings, that their only job is to circle around the throne and say holy (laughs) and worship God. But there are also angels that that are sent, and their main job is 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 to help us. Are they not all? So he's not talking about every heavenly creature, but he's saying all angels are ministering spirits. What does minister mean? They serve. They are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. That's you and me. It's a pretty big deal, isn't it? If we skip on to chapter 2, Now, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that angels were behind the giving of the law, that angels were a big part of that. It says says that, uh, you know, God's voice was a part of that. God obviously wrote on the stone. We know that. But it says that it was brought by angels. It was ministered by angels. And so we we understand that there were angels with those Israelites. They They were ministering to them. They were aiding them in battle. They were helping them. And here... Moving on from the angels for a second, here in chapter 2, it says in verse 10, sorry, no, let's skip down, verse 14, therefore since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise also partook of the same. So he became flesh and blood with us, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels. Jesus didn't die for angels. Jesus is not up there interceding for angels. He does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Now, what I love about this is if you dig in, the, if you look at it in the original language, It doesn't just say gives help. It literally says he takes hold of the descendant of Abraham. And that to me is so much bigger. Because, you know, when you promise somebody I'm going to help you, I'll help you move. You know the people that say I help you move and they actually keep their word, but they show up for half an hour and then they go home. I got something. There's a show. My show's on. My show's on. I helped you, though. So help can mean so many different things, right? Give a little help. Help the kids in Africa. Throw a couple pennies down the, you know, the wish fountain. You know, I mean, help is relative. But when you hear him say he takes hold, I have a picture of Jesus taking hold of me and saying, if you go down, I go down. We're in this together. Of him grabbing me and saying, we're... Though whatever's coming against you is coming against me. We're, we're together. I've taken hold of you. I'm not going to let you fall. I'm not going to let you die. I'm not going to let you be destroyed. I'm with you right now. That's the kind of Jesus we're talking about. That's the kind of Savior we're talking about. And who does he give help to? Who does he take hold of? The descendant of Abraham. This is Jesus still keeping the covenant that he made with Abraham. And we're a part of that now. 
Now, that's New Testament. That's, you might say, well, that's Jesus. This is after the cross. And yet, this is the same covenant promises that God had with his people. Of course, here's the difference. In the New Testament, he's rendered powerless the devil who had the power of death through the cross. That's new. That's improved. That's, that's awesome. But God, even in the old covenant, you could see him taking hold of his people. He uses language like this. When he says to Pharaoh, he says, you have messed with my firstborn. Because you have hurt my firstborn. If you don't let my firstborn go, your firstborn will suffer. Now that sounds brutal and cruel to us, and that's hard to picture. But that's the kind of relationship God had with his people. My firstborn. It's very easy in a time of sighing, in a time of affliction, in a time of groaning to think, where is God? But he never let go of his people. And he heard their cry. And I just picture that. The times where I have, there's been times where I was composed enough to think about it and pray through a great prayer. But there's other times all I could do was call in the name of the Lord and he answered. And he hears the cry of the righteous. He hears the cry of his people. And I want to read you something in Psalm 18. You guys are still here, right? Yeah, hmm. I've said this to you before, but I like reading the Psalms. Um, and I like to find myself in the Psalms. I think that I think that Jesus did that, found himself in the Psalms. I think the church in the early church found themselves in the Psalms. I think that the Psalms were present, they were prophetic, they were, uh, they, they ministered to the people that would sing these songs, and so uh, I often find myself in these places where um, I'll find where I am, and so if I'm having a day where I just want to praise God, and it's just, you know, James says, if you're cheerful, is anyone cheerful among you? He says, let them sing. That's, that's the response to being cheerful. You're supposed to sing. Was anybody sick? Well, let them pray. Have some people pray for you. But there are times when I'm just cheerful and I'm just having a great day. I find a psalm that just praises God. Oh, and I just, just, just a rejoicing psalm and I find it and I just rejoice. But we all know that you shouldn't save your rejoicing just for a good day, right? That rejoicing and praise has the power to take you out of where you are. But it's demonstrated in the psalm so clearly that, that there are times where you read the beginning of the psalm and you say, how could God have inspired this part? And I think that God left it there because there are parts of the psalm that are so divine and there are parts of the psalm that though, are in, though they're inspired by God, they still have the voice of a human who quite hasn't settled on the fact that God is with him yet. You'll know that by the beginning of some of these, he's, he's really just depressed. And David wasn't just like a, you know, just the, one of those emo artists that's just always got something to cry about. I mean, he literally had people trying to kill him. His son started a rebellion against him. His best friend left him for the other team to try and kill him. 
I mean, he had reason to write some sad songs. If anybody had a reason to sing the blues, it was David. But no psalm that he wrote was the blues all the way through. It starts that way, but then it comes out of it. Because as we begin to bring whatever we've got to the Lord, we can't just stay in that low place. He brings us out of the low place and into his presence. He, as David says, he took me and he set me on a rock and now I can see above my enemies. Because you guys know what it's like where you look around and you can't see anything but the problems. I don't know why it is, but <laughs> as a pastor... The problems are not spaced out. They're not. They're not well regulated. They come in terrible waves. And uh, often when we're like out of town or, uh, you know, or just, just starting to relax and then boom. And in those moments, sometimes you can give yourself over to them and just look around and be overwhelmed that all you can see are the issues David says, but as I came into your presence, you took me out and you set me on a high place and I could see above my enemies. And you know what it's like when you can finally see beyond the immediate problems and you see what he sees. So I hitch a ride with the Psalms all the time. I say, going my way. David, you seem to be at a similar place right now. Can I, can I catch a ride with you? Because I know you'll end up at a good spot. I want to start where you are, and we'll sing together. Whoa, stuff seems to be happening all the time. I got enemies trying to kill me. But before the end of it, oh, but surely God is my helper. Surely he's my deliverer. Surely he will set me on a rock. Surely he will. Oh, and then by the end of it, you're dancing around the house, and you're fine. And there's a psalm in Psalm 18 that is so, I can feel what he feels. Because he says from the very beginning, this is a man who's been through stuff. It's not that naive, I, if, I, if somebody buys me enough positive greeting cards, I'll have something positive to say. This is a man who's been through almost hell and back. In fact, some of his psalms, he says, I know you won't abandon me in Sheol. And he says this, I love you, Lord. My strength. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, and he's my fortress, and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, the shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And I love how he says, I love you because this is who you are to me. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. And the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol. Sheol is a Hebrew term for the grave, death. Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. That's the word we see there that the Israelites 
Both of those words, called and then they cried. And that cry is, is, is almost an exclamation. It's, it's less of a, I know he prayed, but this is less of a prayer and more of a shout. And I cried to the Lord for help. And he heard my voice out of his temple. And my cry for help before him came into his ears. Don't you love that there is no delay between your voice and God's ears? Don't you love that the God who is overseeing the world and who sees every nation and every human being and every, every issue that's arising before him, he hears it, he sees it, and yet he hears your cry. They enter his ears. And he says, Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and he came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew. He sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the sky. From the brightness before him passed his thick clouds, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice hailstones, and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them, and lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. Then the channels of water appeared, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils, he sent them from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a broad place. You hear that? From that narrow place where the walls are closing in on you, the ceiling is falling down on you. He brought me into a broad place. That's the place that God wants to bring you into. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Hmm. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I've kept the ways of the Lord, have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his ordinances were before me. I didn't put his statues away from me. I was blameless with him. And I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyes. With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. With the crooked, you show yourself astute. For you save an afflicted people. But haughty eyes you abase, for you light my lamp. The Lord my God illumines my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. Isn't that amazing? I love that. You, you would never know this is a guy that committed adultery, got a woman pregnant, and killed her husband so he could have her. This blameless man. This righteous man. Apparently he also knew something about the cleansing mercy of God. But what I want to focus on through this is that when he cried out and his cry hit the ears of God, <laughs> you read that and you go, God, surely this is overkill. 
he describes what happened when his cry heard God's ear, hit God's ears. Literally, when the cry of the righteous hit the ears of God, God shook heaven and earth to change his situation. Literally split the heavens. Literally shook the earth to reach his guy and save him. What can God do for his people? I think the first thing you need to remember, it should be instinctual for us to call out to God for deliverance, for us to cry out to Him for help. But it'll only be instinctual if you truly believe He is your deliverer. Why would you call out for help for someone that you don't believe will save you? Why would you call out for help for someone you don't believe can save you? Do you know the problem with our modern religion is that it has taken this, this cry of God's people, so often it has robbed it from the people. Sure, people cry out, but they cry out with double minds. God, if you want to, you can help me, but if you don't, you don't. No one, not no one, <laughs> there's so many that don't truly cry out and say, he'll, he'll help me if he hears me. To know that our God is for us, to know that our God is a keeper of covenant. To know that our God is our helper, our deliverer. The Bible says, in fact, David says this. He says, to the Lord, the Lord is my deliverer. To he alone belongs salvation and deliverances from death. So his confidence was such that he truly knew when the righteous call on God, he will deliver them. He doesn't, he doesn't claim that righteous people will live a life free of conflict. He doesn't claim that righteous people will live in a bed of flowers and roses with lollipops and rainbows. But he tells you, when you cry out, God hears you. And we're going to talk in a few weeks about the problem of the Israelites crying out but then not really being able to receive what God sent to rescue them. And that's another thing and another story for another time. But today, I want us to get this in us. Our God is a delivering God. And He takes hold of His people. And even though God has never let go of you, and even though He has never forgotten His covenant, He does respond to the prayers of the righteous, of the saints, and the cries of the righteous. And I know that sometimes seems like, well, which one is it? Does God, does God, is God helping me whether or not I ask? Yes. Does God respond when I ask? Yes. James says, you have not because you've asked not. Jesus said, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open for you. So, you guys, we have to open our mouths. God hears it right? He's not ignoring you. He's not unaware of your problems. Remember, before they ever cried, God was already raising a boy into a man that would deliver them before they ever said a word. But he heard the cry of the people, and they called out to him help. And I got to believe at some point they got together and said, let's ask God. Cry out to God. Call on the name of the Lord. I love this. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous will run to it and be saved. What does that mean? What does that mean? I mean, let's, let's, uh, it's, it makes a great song. 
and makes a great spiritual thought. But reality, how will you apply that verse? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous will run to it. Tell me how you run to the name of the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved, right? Be delivered. Be rescued. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The name of the Lord is something we call upon. How do I run to the name of the Lord? Well, the first thing I got to do is believe in the name of the Lord. And the Lord's name, what is his name? Oh, my goodness. You could go through the Bible and see all the names of God. But the one name that, I mean, surely he's called Yahweh. And he's called, you know, all these things that come after Yahweh. You know, God, my healer. God, my rescuer. God, my righteousness. God, my salvation. All these things. But the name he gives his son who dies for us and becomes that bridge is Yeshua. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord saves The Lord rescues people. The Lord delivers. If there's any name, it's that. He is the rescuer. He is the savior. He is the deliverer. And that's what he wants to be known at. The righteous will always believe that he is still the savior. The righteous will always believe that when they call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. I know we use that for altar calls, and we should. But saved doesn't just mean saved from hell. Saved means to be rescued to be delivered, to be brought out. And the Lord still wants to save you. He saved you from hell. He saved you from death. He saved you from darkness. He saved you from the world. He saved you from yourself. But he wants to save you over and over again. God, to him belongs salvation. Salvation, in fact, that's not just in the Old Testament. It's said in in the book of Revelation, salvation belongs to our God. Let's let that be on our mouth. Cry out to God and be heard. Yeah, yeah, I believe in a good, well-thought-out prayer. But I also believe in the time of trouble, the righteous will call upon the Lord. And you don't have to have a perfect prayer. And you don't have to have a thousand words. You just have to say, Lord, save me. And he does. Lord, fill me. And he does. Lord, heal me, and he does. Lord, deliver me, and he does. Lord, answer me, and he does. Lord, visit me, and he does. Lord, rescue me. Lord, comfort me, anything, and he does. Because that's who he is. Amen? Amen. Stand up with me. Let's pray.